Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Hello, everyone. My name is Leanna McGuire, and I will be your host for this Elite Learning podcast series, Careers in Nursing. We're excited to be speaking with Dr. Jennifer Menzik Kennedy on this episode as she guides us through the various educational and career pathways for RNs within advanced practice, leadership, and academia. Dr. Menzik Kennedy is the president of the American Nurses Association and is an assistant professor at the Oregon Health Science University School of Nursing. Her nursing career started in a critical access hospital and continued within the community as a home health and hospice nurse. Jennifer earned her PhD in nursing from the University of Arizona College of Nursing with a major focus in health systems and a minor in public administration from the Eller College of Management. Dr. Menzik Kennedy has extensive leadership experience in nonprofit and academic medical centers and health systems. Additionally, she has taught and written courses for DMP master's and undergraduate programs. She's had numerous publications, including books, Lead, Drive, and Thrive in the System, and The Nurse Manager's Guide to Innovative Staffing, and co-authored for A Nurse's Step-by-Step Guide to Transitioning to the Professional Nurse Role. The Power of Ten, Second Edition, and a chapter writer for the book The Career Handoff, a healthcare leader's guide to knowledge and wisdom transfer across generations. She has served nationally for the American Nurses Association as treasurer board of directors and was prior ANA board of directors, second vice president and director at large. Additionally, Dr. Menzik Kennedy served as the president of the Arizona Nurses Association. She has published and presented nationally and regionally on quality, staffing and professional practice and is a peer reviewer for worldviews on evidence-based nursing and nursing economics. Wow. <laughs> that's, 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 I mean, that's really quite the career. Welcome, Dr. Menzik Kennedy. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Yes, great. We're, we're really pleased to have you. So let's begin with advanced practice nursing. To start, how many APRN roles are there? Yeah, there are um, four main APRN roles when we look at career paths for advanced practice. Um, sometimes um, any graduate des- graduate degree kind of gets stuck into this large catch-all bucket. Um, you know, if you're a nurse manager or a leader uh, with a graduate degree, everyone wants to call those advanced practice, and they are. But specifically, advanced practice registered nurse roles, there are four. And those would be the nurse practitioner, the CRNA, the clinical nurse specialist, and the certified nurse midwife. Okay, great. You know, I'm, I'm always curious when it comes to nurse practitioners, can they practice independently with uh, without uh, physician collaboration or supervision? You know, that's a really complicated question. And <laughs> it's something that we continue to work on. Currently, nurse practitioners can practice independently in 23 states. And same with other um, advanced practice roles, each one may be very different state to state. So in some states, um, you might have independent practice for a nurse practitioner, but may not have independent practice for the CRNA. 
And so there's a lot of work going on nationally to really remove those barriers to be able to allow all four of those roles to practice independently. And on top of that, even though you might, you know, be in a state where you can practice independently, what we've seen is there's still a lot of local facility barriers to truly practicing independently that we all need to work on, actually, and be able to um, remove policies and processes that require physician oversight. Because if your license doesn't require it, the facility shouldn't require it. Right, right. That makes perfect sense. Uh, and so um, what degrees are required in order for, to have these advanced practice roles? Absolutely. So everyone needs at the, at currently um, a master's degree in nursing or higher. There was some conversation um, for a while that says that we really need to move to a doctoral level, a DNP level prepared uh, APRN role. And while I'm not counting that out by any means, um, the CRNAs actually have moved towards that. So this, um, the nurse anesthetists have actually um, stated, if you are entering a program now, you must graduate with a doctoral level degree. And so I, I do see the other ones will follow suit. And there's a grandfathering clause in this. Okay. So if you don't have, if you're practicing currently, or if you're going to be graduating soon, um, you won't um, have to go back uh, for that doctoral degree because um, you'll be grandfathered in. But I do see this um, continuing to be the trend. There's so much information and knowledge um, that just exists from a patient care perspective. We really do need to be as highly prepared educationally uh, as well as clinically for those types of roles. Right. That makes sense. Now, what exactly is the Advanced Practice Nurse Consensus Paper, and what does it mean to the profession? Thank you. Thank you. So this is um, what the consensus model is, and sometimes people call it LACE for short, and they're also working on producing a new one. So this came out in 2008, and it was dozens of organizations in nursing came together to say, how do we standardize? Um, the four roles from a licensing, accreditation, certification, and educational perspective. Because as we find new populations and new places to provide care as an APRN, we really need to make sure our, all four of those components are standardized, particularly as we look at licenses, educational um, academic programs, it's really important that when someone says, I'm a nurse practitioner, a family nurse practitioner, for instance, that that means the same thing across all of the organizations and the states that are providing um, for that person. So, which it becomes a little bit more interesting when we start looking at nurse practitioners because of all the different types of certifications. So where if you're, um, and clinical uh, nurse specialists, CNSs, um, also have different certifications, whereas the midwives and the nurse anesthetists do not, that um, really helps to understand the scope and role of nurse practitioners. So family nurse practitioner certification, what is an adult gero, um, gero certification, neonatal certification, PEDS, women's and gender gender related. So it's really important to say what is in each one of those buckets and how do 
each one of those types of nurse practitioners, for instance, provide care within those buckets. Excellent. Excellent. And can, can you talk to us about educational pathways between master's and doctoral requirements? Yeah, there is, you know, so when you go into school, there's there's been a drop in the number of master's entry programs for these advanced practice roles. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the Future of Nursing report came out in um, 2010. And, and what they said was, we'd really like to see the number of doctoral students, the number of nurses with doctoral degrees doubled in within their time period of that first report. And a lot of educational um, organizations started um, moving towards offering those Doctor of Nursing Practice, the DNP degree, as the terminal degree for practice in uh, nursing. So many programs, even though it's not required for license or certification, had already moved into a doctoral level preparation for those four main roles. Um, so there are opportunities to go from a bachelor's degree in nursing into a DNP program that would train you and educate you into one of those four roles. There's also still programs, um, except for the CRNA, that would let you enter into uh, a master's program and exit with the master's program. However, you do have the option, um, as there are many um, programs out there that allow you, if you have a master's degree, to go and finish a doctoral degree. And so you can do a master's to DNP um, uh, program if you if you are a nurse practitioner or a CNA who would like that doctoral degree. Uh, of course, you can also get any other number of doctoral degrees, such as a PhD, um, if you prefer. Excellent. Okay. Um, and I'm I'm sure there's various continuing education certification and regulatory restrictions. Can you speak to some of those for us? Yeah, you know, it's a really complicated um, structure in a way, um, but this is. This is how the nurse practitioners, particularly nurse practitioners and CNSs, um, scopes have been built around, particularly in related relationship to that consensus model, the LACE standards, um, which we're update, which are being currently worked on. So um, we look at population and foci areas. And so as new populations came forward, so for instance, the emergency department, um, we started to see um, well over a decade, 15 plus years ago, more and more nurse practitioners working in the emergency room. And there was a lot of questions around, well, there wasn't uh, a certification for emergency rooms, but this is a really important new population. So, you know, which role would be a nurse practitioner uh, in the ER? Would it be a family nurse practitioner? Would it be an acute care nurse practitioner? Would it be an adult or pediatric? And so um, through a lot of um, development from nurse practitioners who had been practicing, working with national bodies, they actually were able to create a process and a structure to become also credentialed as an emergency nurse practitioner, which is really important. So if there currently isn't, um, I can, I, there are probably other new populations and areas that, are, that will continue to emerge that we may need to do the same thing for. And so um, having that scope is important and which is also what differentiates us from physician's assistants. I, we hear that a lot. Well, yeah. the physician assistant, you know, is, can do anything wherever, but they still are required to always practice underneath the scope of a, of a physician. 
And through our model of uh, advanced practice, that's our work is to have these special specializations, um, particularly to demonstrate the knowledge base so that we're not practicing underneath the scope of a physician at any point. So um, it's really important um, from that perspective that we're educated and certified in those areas. Excellent. Okay. Thank you for that. Is it true that last year qualified applicants uh, were turned away from bachelorette and graduate programs? Oh, absolutely. So we have this horrible nursing shortage and a lot of it, um, not a, well, a good amount of it comes from the fact that we've always just really been short of faculty. So for instance, we're currently, um, we currently last year turned in 2021, turned away 91,938 qualified applications um, for nursing students because lack of faculty, lack of um, clinical rotations, preceptors, resources across the board. And that's not good when we have this looming shortage coming up where we really need to be able to prepare. And so um, and it, whether it's a registered nurse um, or an advanced practice nurse. You know, the, the country depends on us. And so there we have this, um, this definite need for faculty. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, and um, I'm just, I'm also curious about uh, the PhD program. What's the average age of a nurse graduating from a PhD program? No, absolutely. So the average nurse graduating from a PhD program is 47.5, which becomes important because very traditionally, those have been the individuals who have been faculty in our schools of nursing. And so when we look at a shortage of faculty, the fact that many nurses don't go back to school for a graduate degree until way later in their life is also a contributing factor. And, and I would say, um, unfortunately, in, um, and even in my own experience, when I was considering getting my PhD, um, I was in my mid-20s, and there are many individuals who would tell me, you need to practice for a while before you go back to school to get your PhD. And I don't understand, I still don't understand the connection, um, because um, that doesn't necessarily make me a better faculty or researcher. And so, you know, there's no other body or profession that I can think of that says you need to practice at a um, certain level so many years before you go back. We don't do that for social work. We don't do that for physicians. We don't do that for psychologists. You know, any of these other disciplines who do get advanced degrees, we don't tell them to stop and practice for a while. And so I, you know, didn't listen to them. And I said, I'm going to go do my own thing. And, but I do hear a lot of people who say, you know, I, I need to do that. Now, and same with, you know, advanced practice registered nurses. I do hear a lot of people say, you need to be, you know, practice for a while. And, you know, I think each person needs to make that individual choice for themselves um, on what they feel is right um, and when they're timing. It's, it's really hard once you graduate from school. And, and so I got my schooling done, like completely back to back to back to done before you know, I even had children. So I had like 12 years of college um, and went through it. But it's because it is hard because when you take a pause, you start to have your life come back and there's other things that get in the way. 
And so it's really hard to kind of pause life. Now, by no means should that be, you know, I have kids and I have a life. It's going to be too hard for me. No, it's, it's doable. But if you have the chance, just go to school and get your schooling done. And if not, you know, we need everyone to come to the table. We need everyone to come be faculty. We need advanced practice nurses. We need RNs. So we do need everyone to be able to go back to school and uh, help contribute um, to making the country better from a health perspective. Because that's, you know, that's why we're nurses and getting those advanced degrees has a direct relationship to the health of our country. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought that up because, I mean, there have been little shifts in that uh, in that pattern of wanting people to spend time. I mean, I'm going to date myself when I started nursing. I had to spend four years on med surge before I could go to ICU. I'm um, new nurses. Uh, you know, if you're out there listening that you're probably thinking, what? Uh, it actually made ICU seem all that more daunting, you know, like I had to have some kind of, I don't know, secret uh, knowledge base before I could make that step. So, I mean, we've come a little way, but you're absolutely right. No one else has to do that. That's really interesting. Exactly. Yeah. So that- no, and, and the funny thing about that is, too, we couldn't do that requirement nowadays anyway, because there's not enough open. You don't want a whole unit of new grads on one shift. So not everyone, we have so many new grads at any point now that, and there's so many opportunities outside of nursing. We have to look at this very, very differently. You just, there's not enough space in med surge no. for every nurse, <laughs> for every new nurse to go and spend four years, even a year. Right. It's a ridiculous concept, really, when you think about it. Okay, so let's talk about leadership. Um, who would you classify as a nurse leader? Oh, well, well, so I think every nurse is a leader. So regardless of position, where you're at, um, you know, any nurse is a leader. And, and this is, you know, whether you're on your unit working with your colleagues, shared leadership is a great opportunity as well on your unit to kind of dip your toe into, do I like managing and leading? And what research will show that shared leadership actually does um, build the skills necessary for continued and shows the connection of continued leadership and management roles, if that's where you kind of want to head off to. Right. Interesting. Um, I, I, I kind of I, I, leadership for some, and maybe it was for you right from the beginning, something that really drew you in. But I've certainly worked with enough people that it wasn't even on their wavelength until they got into the profession and then it was something that they wanted to bridge before. So how does one get started in leadership? (laughs) (laughs) So it definitely would be one shared leadership is one perspective, but I think sometimes um, if there's a project or a need on your unit, you know, volunteer, volunteer for simple things to kind of get recognized. And part of that is, I think, when people see an individual step up outside of their norm, they identify you naturally as a leader because you've chosen to make that first step forward. Now, also, there are people who have got really great skills and someone you know, may say, hey, you know, have you considered joining this or doing that too? And I think that's a really great way for those of us who are experienced leaders to get people involved. Because sometimes I I think people may not think of themselves as leader until someone else recognizes it in themselves as well. Amen. Yes. I, I always call that kind of the definition of mentoring as if you see someone, uh, see something in someone that you, that you think is, uh, yep. they could do to mention it and not just think, oh, they'd make a good so-and-so and then walk away because you plant a seed, right? 
Absolutely. And we have such a shortage of nurse leaders. Um, and, you know, we have a million nurses who will be retiring in the next decade because they're baby boomers and it's, you know, they're starting to age um, as we bring Gen Z in. So we, we have typically had nurse leaders who are older. And so we really do need to, to mentor and bring up and to facilitate um, nurses being nurse leaders as well. Yeah, that's great. And there are a variety of leadership roles, correct? Oh my gosh, yes. There's lots of roles. Absolutely. So, you know, there's, if I, if, and not being hospital centric, because I, my clinical experience was in, um, mostly in home health and community, but, you know, you've got the charge nurse role, um, you've got director roles, you've got system roles where you might be in charge of uh, some type of project across numerous hospitals or organizations. Those same roles do exist in community settings where you might be a clinical lead um, or a director, of course, then there's also the, the nurse executives. Um, but I think most people uh, forget about being on boards and the role nurses could have on boards. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, and we'll get into that in just a second. But uh, a lot of people see the, the chief uh, nursing executive, chief nurse executive as being like the pinnacle of leadership. Is it? Or uh, I don't know. I mean, you're going to be president of uh, ANA. That's... <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I think a lot of people um, look at that role and and if that's what they want to do, and that's fantastic. Um, but many times I think the rest of the world sees that as the top as well. And I think it's up to us to be able to demonstrate that nurses could be on um, a number of different roles, such as they could be the CEO of the hospital right. or the health system. Right. They We need nurse leaders in, on, in insurance companies. We need nurse leaders in state Medicaid programs. We need leaders um, in clinics who can help manage and run and facilitate nursing practice. So um, while that might seem like sometimes the most visible high level role, we really could make such a difference by having highly visible, high position nurse leaders. Um, and it's not just about it's a nursing role. It could be the CEO that doesn't require an RN, but as an RN you've chosen, um, or an events practice nurse, you've chosen to um, apply and be in that role. Okay, got it, all right. And I'm sure that most people know about this, but sadly when I was a new RN and it took several years before I even heard about it, what exactly is shared governance for anyone else out there who's had the same experience that I did? You know, not every facility has shared governance, um, but you haven't, there's, you know, plenty, there's a lot of resources online that one can Google and look up, but it really is about unit level, department level, hospital level, nurse leaders. Um, when, I, when I say nurse leaders, I'm talking about staff nurses, direct care nurses, and there are definitely um, shared governance um, in non-hospitals as well, but coming together that really guide their practice on their unit and their department and for their patients. And that's really the goal of it. Um, you know, you might get, a, you know, you might see sure governance kind of leading some holiday parties, but um, getting some involvement there, but really it is about looking at your policies, looking at your practice, controlling your practice, reviewing the quality of what's occurring and having that voice be heard. Many sure governances also have managers involved. 
Um, uh, your unit manager may be involved, the CNO or CNE may be involved as well. Um, and that's really, from my perspective, their role is there to help make sure you don't do something you can't do. So, um, you know, like uh, violate an HR principle, <laughs> right? Violate something um, that's, a, you know, a rule or regulation. But really, sh we should allow staff nurses to drive the practice because, you know, th they know best in many of the situations. Right. So anyone can get involved. Anyone can get involved and should get involved if they can. Uh, what I hear quite often is some of the shared governance might have the same individuals um, on for a very long time. And I think if you're on shared governance, you need to reflect on that and look at term limits. Um, and then also how if you're on shared governance as a staff member, how do you invite others how do you see that leadership skill in others? How do you invite others? And then, you know, kind of help facilitate those leadership skills um, across the board. Right. Because uh, obviously it would have some impact on early career development being involved in this, correct? Absolutely. Well, we would see in um, going back um, some of my prior roles, we actually saw individuals who had been the leaders or their chairs of shared governance um, uh, leave before their term was up because they had gotten a role as a formal leader and so which was exciting to see so they they got excited about their own development and then that brought in new opportunities for individuals to be the chair and have those leadership skills as well in their shared governance so i'm gonna i'm gonna take you uh in a direction of um going into a little bit of the psych social piece of this only because i know in various hospitals teaching hospitals are a certain way rural hospitals can be a different way and certainly uh, uh i know it's been a while but my early experience was working on that med surge floor and there was always a little bit of a sense in the hospital setting of the us versus them with nursing and management. So can you talk just a little bit about having the, you know, giving yourself and having the confidence to make that step? Because it's tough, right? When you all of a sudden make yeah. that transition to be the leader of the people that you were a peer with previously, of uh, not letting the us and them conversation keep you from advancing your career. Any thoughts on Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Then that's a very tough rule um, that I've seen many individuals try to navigate, some successfully, some not successfully, because you became, you were a colleague one day that people would, you, you would be with them when they would grumble. And then the next day, you're the person they're grumbling about. And I think, um, one, it's tough because individually, as, as that person who might now be the manager, you need to then recognize your own role change. Um, that you're not necessarily the colleague and a friend, um, but you are the manager of the unit. Now, with that said, it's about understanding the role of the manager and the leader is to not be the one with all the answers and tell people what to do, because I've seen people do that. They get into, they want to be the manager or leader so they can, you know, make sure things get done the way they think they should be done. But that's not a management and leadership. Management leadership is really about, okay, my, my colleagues, uh, who people were my colleagues, they know what the solutions are. They know what they need and how they need to do it. It's my role to remove barriers and to help facilitate them to get their stuff done. And so, and I think when you approach that change from that lens, it's less of um, them versus us and more about them recognizing they now have 
a colleague, um, friend, if you would, in leadership and management who's going to help be their champion because you're there to be their champion, not their friend. Um, I've seen people get in trouble for being too friendly with their staff. Um, so there's, of course, those HR boundaries, but I think, you know, really understanding why they're there is to facilitate and help their staff um, do what they do best. Great advice. Thank you for sharing that. That's super. Very, very helpful. Okay. That's all the time we have for episode one. We hope you will join us for episode two as we take a closer look into nursing roles in leadership and academia. This is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit elitelearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.